Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name is John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In most episodes of the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about issues that affect law enforcement officers, both active and retired, their families, friends, and supporters. We'll also be discussing incidents in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Visit our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today. The Law Enforcement Today radio show brought to you by Galls.com. That's G-A-L-L-S.com. Get everything at Galls.com and their customer service is unparalleled. Galls.com. Also check them out on Facebook and Instagram. This is John J. Wiley. Robert Greenberg's off taking care of official police business. Got a great guest on the phone. Well, I tell you, someone's got an incredible story, but true. This gentleman, Ken Krause, has a phenomenal story, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Ken, how are you doing today? Excellent, sir. It's a pleasure and an honor to uh, be on your show. Feeling better than most days lately uh, up here in Atlanta, and uh, looking forward to talking with you. We were talking about Atlanta traffic. Every time I've been through that town, doesn't matter what time of day or night, what day of the week, it's always packed. It's just like nonstop bumper-to-bumper traffic. Absolutely. You're totally right. I mean, uh, if it's just a normal everyday people working back and forth, plus with all the sports programs we have here and the new stadium that we just built for uh, the Falcons, I mean, it's, uh, it's just off the charts. And that's just uh, normal work days. I mean, throw some uh, traffic in there with uh, weather, or a uh, you know a, a a bad time with uh, some wrecks or something. That's just normal daytime. Then at night it's just we got the main arteries coming through 75 Interstate 75 and uh, um, 85 coming through, splitting the city you know right in half like an X. Then at night it's just nothing but tractor trailers all over the place. And of course you know you have uh, if you get in and around uh, near the um, the airport. I mean that's just another nightmare by itself. Atlanta's a bu- very busy airport. It's so hugely if you, uh, busy. If you can get used to it, there you go. And I want to thank you for coming on because you're just getting over recuperating, doing physical therapy from shoulder surgery. How long ago was your surgery? Sir, I had a rotator cuff and a labrum uh, repair on the right shoulder due to a car accident uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and I had it done about four years ago, and I've had multiple orthopedic surgeries as a result of uh, injuries of police work, and I I thought they were bad. Nothing compared to shoulder surgery. It was the most intense pain I've ever felt in my life. Ditto to you, sir. I can't can't expound on exactly what you said, and it's still sore. And every day, I mean, it's, you're living on pain meds, and then you just get tired of that because it tears up your stomach. Yeah. But uh, especially when it's your right-handed, your gun hand, your strong hand, and everything you do, um, mostly through your life, out of just a reaction is out of your strong hand. And, and, you know, that pain just pops right back in and tells you, no, no, it ain't going to happen. So you've got to learn to brush your teeth and put your socks on, do every other kind of private thing in your life with your, uh, you know, your, your weak or your off hand. Absolutely. And enough said on that point. You've had... First of all, you're retired police detective from Roswell, Georgia, correct? Correct, sir. How long have you been retired now? Uh, I retired in November of 2015 with 25 years of service uh, for the city. And then I also had 10 years with as a federal officer with the Department of Energy, uh, nuclear transport uh, couriers for uh, well, nuclear weapons. So you've been involved with law enforcement for a very, very long time. 
probably since I ran away from my first cop at 13, got caught. And then when I was 18, you know, and they say, well, you can go to the Marine Corps, you can go to jail. So I, <laughs> A lot I said, of guys I know Corps. enlisted like that in the 1970s in Virginia. They're given the choice by the judge and a lot of them elected to, to enlist. Uh, so you did a career in the Marine Corps. We're going to talk about that first because this happened so long ago that I forgot about it until I read what you went through. And then I was like, oh my goodness, I remember. You're in the Marine Corps. You were stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, in Iran. Run, the overthrow took place, and they had the first invasion of the embassy, correct? Absolutely correct, sir. How old were you back then? Uh, I should have been 22. It was 1979, roughly about 37 years ago. So uh, people didn't realize that, you know, when uh, Jimmy Carter and his administration was in there, they basically, uh, you know, failed to support the Shah in such a way that the the, the people that wanted to take over that country, uh, basically what you're looking at today, the forerunners of uh, your, your Taliban and your, and your Al-Qaeda, they came into the vacuum once uh, the Ayatollah uh, Ruhollah Khomeini came in with his new Sharia law and his fundamentalists. People didn't give it you know, the credence do any more than they did just 30 years before that in uh, Batista, you know, and uh, 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 Fidel Castro, you know, they didn't give him the uh, batter's edge either. And look what he took over the whole island, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cuba. So same thing fell here. You lost to Shah in Iran. And Shah Iran back then was a friend of the United States for a long time. I mean, I'm not into the politics of uh, the intelligence or whatever, but he basically at the time, we're still talking about an area 1974 to 79, just post-Vietnam. And what we're looking at here is we're still with the Warsaw Pact and uh, the NATO. This is not Russia, friendly Russia, that's supposed to be what we're dealing with today. These aren't Russians. These are Soviets, okay? And, you know, that's their backyard right there in Iran. So, you know, when we lose our, uh, our listening posts, we lose our intelligence and our uh, human intelligence by losing an embassy, they know. They, they got us uh, in a weak spot. Because back then, our intelligence from satellite um, is nowhere near what it was today. Remember, no emails, no cell phones, you know, none of the dot-com hasn't even come to chance yet. So take us back. You were a young Marine sergeant. You're 22 years old. And take us back to your duty assignment and what you can tell us about what occurred. Well, basically, I was sent what they call uh, TAD. Um, we, it's a temporary additional duty from the American Embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus. And that was my home, my home uh, embassy at the time. At the time, it looked like they were the uh, the country was falling apart, and a lot of the important uh, money making people over there were uh, packing their bags and trying to get out. It was putting a lot of uh, extra stress on the um, security and the logistics of the embassy and on the consulate that was downtown in, in Tehran. So they needed to bolster uh, bolster the security uh, detachment of uh, twenty Marines up. So they pulled one or two from all what we call the fat embassies, the embassies like Madrid, Rome. You know, I mean, there's not at the at the time uh, uh, generic or specific um, terroristic threat. So they pulled one or two from several different posts, and me being one in, in Cyprus, and uh, sent us over there. So it was uh, in, in 1978. So we were there for a couple of months, you know, to bolster the uh, regular Marines that were there for extra hours and extra duty, the extra post they needed to man, while a lot of Americans that worked for companies like Ross Perot and EDS and uh, Bill and Howe and, and, you know, Sikorsky Helicopter, et cetera, were actually, you know, trying to evacuate and get out of the country. So basically that's why they asked us, you know, in there to, to begin with. So you're there, you're a young sergeant, and there's a, a volatile change happening in Iran, and the embassy got overrun while you were on duty? Uh, absolutely. It was uh, 
basically is uh, after several months of the Shah's uh, failure to be able with the backing from the West and politics and whatever, everybody picking sides, um, it just got more and more out of hand. And uh, when it looked like he could no longer uh, hold the country, um, he, he basically just took off and evacuated the country, went to Algeria, went to try to get to Egypt and Algeria. Anyway, he fled the country and just left a giant vacuum there. The Americans had no idea what they were going to do. They were going to try to bolster it up and put a puppet government in there. I think his name is Shapur Bakhtiar, and then there was a Bazagan government. I mean, every week they were changing styles and names, and nobody knew what was going on. And once Khomeini came back in, he flew back in like a, uh, like, like a Robin Hood and uh, a, a hero. country just went from being a solid right-wing conservative, more or less Western power, to you know, back to the medieval times. And it was uh, it was really macabre to watch you know the whole country like that is large and is huge. I mean, it's like twice the size of Texas. You know, when people say Iran, most people didn't even know where it was at the time. In that in this 1978-79, Iran Iraq war hadn't even happened yet. Nobody hadn't seen it. You couldn't find that on the map when you talk to most people. You know, you're talking about ancient Persia. You know, the people might be Muslim, but they are not Arabs. I mean, they are Persians. They speak Farsi. It's a totally different culture, different civilization. So when you're looking at that, you can look back in your Bible and see where, uh, you know, Cyrus and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Xerxes, Darius, that's all their ancient kings. They're very proud of their background out there. And uh, it's a very warlike, volatile situation. And they got a very and, uh, long storied history. And folks, we're talking with Ken Krause, retired Roswell, Georgia police detective, uh, United States Marine. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what happened when the embassy was overrun. This is Law Enforcement Today. We'll be right back. Do you owe back taxes to the IRS? Newsflash, the president has changed the tax laws. And now you may be able to pay the IRS less. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, the tax doctor can help you pay the IRS as little as possible allowed by law. There are new tax laws for business owners, the self-employed, even W-2 workers. If you have a back tax problem or a few years of unfilled returns, new help to save you money is now here. Call right now to see how the new tax Tax laws can help you. Plus, right now, we'll waive the consultation fee and give you a free tax savings report. Attention business owners, the self-employed, and W-2 workers. Make this free call to the tax doctor now and learn how to take advantage of the new tax laws that may help you pay the IRS less. 800-663-5107. 800-663-5107. That's 800-663-5107. Driving means freedom, exploration, fun, pride, flexibility, friendship, independence. Distracted driving means danger, recklessness, irresponsible, chaos, police, devastation, tears, death. Safe driving means staying alert and staying alive. Visit stoptextstoprex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council. Public safety professionals are regular people that heroically rush forward. Despite the fire or the storm, despite the worst of society and the undeserved contempt, they rush in to save, to protect, to hold our nation together. For more than 50 years, Galls has stood with our troops stationed abroad and with our nation's first responders who serve us here at home every day. Galls, proud to serve America's public safety professionals. Visit Galls.com today. 
Welcome back to Law Enforcement Today. We're talking with Ken Krause, United States Marine, retired Roswell, Georgia, police detective, uh, long story career. And you're, you're talking about, can the environment in Iran in the mid to late 70s, and you're stationed there as a young Marine Corps sergeant, and from what I read, you were part of the first time the embassy was overrun, not the one we all think of with the Iran hostage crisis. Tell us about that time period. You, you were a young sergeant. You had a post. You're in the cafeteria, from what I recall, and that what happened? Yeah, we, it was uh, actually February the 14th, Valentine's Day. Uh, and every time Valentine's Day is coming up, trust me, it, it brings back, you know, solemn memories. It makes me stop and think for a while, you know. You know, the St. Valentine's Day massacre that shows on television with the mobsters back then in Chicago, you know? Anyway, so the uh, we were on alert for uh, uh, 24-7. We go on, go on for 24 and then, you know, off for 12 and then come on and rotation. We knew for the most part that we're not going to be able to hold an embassy. I mean, people don't realize this is not a fire base. An embassy is a diplomatic mission. It's built, you know, to look like offices and they're not, there's almost no way to hold an embassy unless you, uh, you know, sandbag it, put walls around it, and you make it a fortress. And then you turn it into an Alamo, you know what I mean? Because you're not going anywhere. If somebody doesn't come in with helicopters or, you know, supplies, you're done. And we knew that. But uh, at the time, we didn't know that Washington wasn't aware just how serious they took uh, Khomeini and the ability for him to uh, get all kinds of different forces. There were different factions all over Iran that wanted the Shah out. But they also want a little piece of the action for uh, the next time the next leader comes in. So it's like a little mini gang war that, with the different type of folks that are there. And very much like it was in downtown Beirut in the 70s, you know? You had uh, different factions fighting each other, and uh, sometimes they fight with each other, sometimes they fight against each other. But no matter what, they all dislike the Americans no matter what. And you get the you know, counterinsurgents in there, rabble-rousers, burning the American flag, firing them up. And let them know that you know we're nothing but more than a station house for you know CIA and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and that we supposedly we supported the SAVAK, but the SAVAK S A V A K was a very long acronym for the Shah secret police, kind of like Gestapo, and their tactics were very similar to that. And there was a lot of people in prisons and uh, had just disappeared, and you know for the most part it just fired up their anger to want to assault the embassy. You know, that with the strategic arms limitation, the SALT-1 agreement's running out. Congress wanted to find out how we can verify what the Russians were doing to, you know, download their nukes. Because you're looking right across the Caspian Sea there, sir, and our CIA guys and our intelligence people were watching them launch their missiles and count everything, you know, back and forth. You take out the embassy, you take out our eyes and ears, they can't do anything. We can't watch and see what they're doing. It makes it very, very difficult. The bad guys know that. So, you know, rabble rousers get in there. And uh, that set up that morning on Valentine's Day. Uh, it was early in the morning. I'd say about 9.30 in the morning. We started here, and we knew that something was going to happen. The uh, Chargé d'Affaires and Colonel uh, Leyland Holland, who was the uh, attache, the uh, military attache, um, they had gotten some kind of uh, intelligence knowing when they put us on alert because all of us were up on the wall. We were all uh, waiting for uh, you know the morning to come by. And we were wondering, since... We weren't sharing hours back and forth. Uh, how are we going to uh, break it down in the morning? Well, come that morning, the assault came. Now, when you look at the embassy, you look back, and if you can find it in the records, it's about a 27-area compound. It looks like a park. It's got a nice wall around it. But also, all the buildings around it 
are high-rise apartment complexes and business offices. So when the book called guerrillas, you know, students, whatever you want to call them, when the salters started firing into the compound, they had complete control of the high ground, the rate of fire, the range of fire. They had us militarily outboxed, outmanned, outgunned, outnumbered. There's next to nothing we could do. Trying to you know, get across from one end of the building to the other, to your main post, uh, with all the disruption and the, and the communications and the problems, it was a nightmare. And uh, basically, so once we had realized that we were under assault, they were holding our heads down. There's not much we could do because they had, the State Department had come through two days earlier. And the weird thing is they took our automatic weapons away. They took our M16s away and they gave us shotguns. And the weird thing is about a shotgun is great at 50 yards, even with a slug, maybe. But when you're talking about trying to keep somebody out of range and keep them away, that's the one of the worst weapons you can use. Absolutely. You know, that's a close range. Yeah. You know, so somebody knew that they that something was coming down. And the name of the game was we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the you know, dot com. Internet wasn't invented yet. I mean, none of this stuff was around. So whenever something happened, if it didn't get on, you know, UPI or API or something like that, shit, you know, it took you another day to find out what was going on over there. You know, seven, eight hours away. So when the assault came over the embassy, uh, when they come over the walls, they, they, they poured over the walls, and uh, the Marines that could fire, they, they, they fired. I mean, I mean, they were, we were getting shot at. They were shooting at us. I mean, it's a firefight. It's on, you know? And um, they pulled back. If you look at them, if, a, uh, if you want to look at a really good book, and I, I use this as a reference because you can go to the U.S. State Department and the Marine Security Guard Battalion. That's the name of it the U.S. Marine Security Guard Battalion, MSG, and State Department by the name of a guy by the name of Doherty. He has done an excellent research job in about 150 years of work uh, that covers all the Marine security embassies anywhere that's ever happened in the world in history. And if you look under there, you'll see the main assault on that embassy that I'm talking about while I was there was taken in, in complete context from personal interviews from every Marine and everyone that observed it and saw what was going on. Actually, he never interviewed me because I was, I was wounded in the assault and taken off the compound. So when I found out about that, uh, that book, and a friend of mine sent it to me, I was amazed that I could look at that's exactly what happened. Because it's like I said, 27 acres, you've got a firefight that's going on for two and a half hours, okay, back and forth, and they're taking building by building by building. And some of us went back to the Chancery Building where the, you know, we have to basically, that's our, our command post one, get back, to, get back there defend the uh, embassy, defend the CIA headquarters, defend the vault room. We have different uh, uh, produce, uh, procedures and protocols. You know, American lives being first, and those but you know that we know who are there, uh, there's a lot of people that work in that area that I'll tell you, you don't want these people to find out who they really are and what they do mm-hmm. for a living, okay? So there's priorities there. But that place being shot up as, as it was, was uh, a couple of us, including myself, could not get across the compound. So we had a we, uh, we hit out at the uh, Caravanserai restaurant, and that's where myself and two other Marines uh, held up with about 22 what we call Foreign Service local employees, um, Filipinos, Pakistanis, people that worked there, you know, at the embassy, you know, paid for doing you know menial or service labors, and a few Americans. And uh, because it was a rounded area, we had a very good uh, ability physically wise to hold off assaulters as they came forward and we shot them off for about you know about an hour and a half but uh we ran low on ammo with them we were getting down to our last few rounds of shotgun shells and uh you know that were down to maybe 30 rounds of uh 
you know, handgun ammo. And um, we're starting to talk to each other saying, you know, their help ain't coming. Uh, you can hear that the radios have been uh, compromised. We can't get through to Post 1, the ambassador. We can't get through to anybody. I mean, we're here in Farsi, the uh, Iranian language on the radio, so we know the couple, uh, a couple of radios have been taken. So without communications, command, and protocol, you know, you're just there to fight it out. That's basically you know, what, what it came down to. And uh, uh, one of the final assaults where they came in, where we shot the out of them um, and, and repulsed them. And we were down to, like, nothing uh, for ammo. And I talked with the other two Marines that were there. They were both sergeants at the time. And I told them, I said, hey, you know, they assault again. We're not going to be able to hold them out. I mean, they come through here. They're going to kill us. And these Americans, these non-combatants, these women, people, stuff in here, they're going to slaughter them. They're going to think they're on our side. I said, we're done. I said, you know, what do you think we want to do? And uh, while we were talking it out, you know, what the, what the options were, one of the guys outside, and he's weird looking, but he looked uh, like he was in charge of of, uh, of the assault, and he was in a suit. It's funny because he was in a suit, and he had bandoliers of ammo on that looked like thirty caliber, but yet he was holding he was holding an Uzi, hmm. and it's it's odd because he's Uzi holding is like really a nine millimeter, right? Yeah, it's a nine millimeter. Yeah. I mean, none of this would fit. And he's holding like a thirty. It looked like he looked like a, a M sixty uh, bandoliers across his chest. I mean, swear it's uh-huh. hilarious. I mean, at the moment, if you could find some humor in the situation. Anyway, and I, I remember that as he was walking around, um, ducking under windows and checking out to see where he could get in and see where, I, I think he's looking for a final assault or where he can get in and keep our heads down with some kind of firepower. And then, of course, you know, get in through, you know, and, and breach somewhere. I followed him around inside. I happened to catch him when he walked around and didn't duck down under window. I popped my, I popped my shotgun out at him. And he just froze there, like 10 feet away. And I didn't know whether I was going to pull the trigger or not, but he's just, he's just standing there looking at me. And it was a standoff. It looked, seemed like forever. And I asked him, because my shotgun's getting heavy. I'm telling you, you your, your adrenaline's dumping. You know, you, you're just, you know, pointing. And you start to see the beat of that shotgun start to, you know, waver. And there's no way that no matter what he did, I pull that trigger, he's gone. And I said, I, I told him, I said, what do you guys want? I said, what do you want? And he says, of course, he wants, he needs to take over the compound. He gave me a bunch of, I said, no, what do you want? I said, the whole place is up in flames and smoke coming from the chancery. I said, no, what do you want with me? I said, we have non-combatants in here, non-Americans, um, you know, Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. Let them know that there was non-combatants in there. I said, that's the only thing I really care about. I said, you, you, we, we shot your guys. And I said, if you want to, I said, you can come get some more. I said, but if you're really serious about it, I said, you let these non-combatants, these Americans, these, these other Foreign Service local employees, you let them go. And I said, I'll surrender myself and my Marines over and my equipment to you. Wow. And he looks at me and he said, and what if I don't? You know, right in my face, just an arrogant And what if I don't? And bottom line, sir, I said, well, then I just blow off. And that's the way it was. We're going to take a short break. This story, Ken, is riveting. Uh, we are talking with Ken Krause, retired Roswell, Georgia, police detective, former U.S. Marine, was involved in the first takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Iran. And we've got so much more to tell you about that in just a few moments. We'll be right back. Public safety professionals are regular people that heroically rush forward. Despite the fire or the storm, despite the worst of society and the undeserved contempt, they rush in to save, to protect, to hold our nation together. For more than 50 years, Gauls has stood with our troops stationed abroad and with our nation's first responders who serve us here at home every day. 
Galls. Proud to serve America's public safety professionals. Visit Galls.com today. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing. Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Medicare rules are confusing. They should be. There are over 130,000 pages of regulations. There's Part A through D, Medicare Advantage, and Medigap. According to the CMS, there are government programs available that can help you pay for your medical expenses. Choosing the right Medicare plan is a really big deal. The wrong choice can cost you a lot of money, and the right choice can put more money in your pocket. Call one of our licensed representatives today. At 65 Plus Medicare, our free service can show you a plan that will maximize your Medicare benefits, ensure you are taking advantage of all available government assistance programs, and save you money. Plus, call right now and get a free report on how to avoid costly Medicare mistakes. Call now. 877-249-6656. That's 877-249-6656. This is Law Enforcement Today. We are back talking with Ken Krause, retired Roswell, Georgia police detective, also United States Marine. Uh, I got to tell you, Ken, man, I'm like across between sweating bullets here, nervous stomach, and I'm trying to imagine what you went through in Iran. And I'll be honest with you, I've been through a lot of bad stuff. Most police have. But nothing it compares to this. When we left off, you had the guy face to face, the standoff, and you offered to surrender yourself in return for the safety of the non-combatants. What happened next? Well, I had no really. I it's it's not that I just came to mind with that, sir. It's I knew that we didn't have enough ammo left, okay, to fight it out. And if I don't find some way, if there's not some kind of a negotiation here. I said a lot more people are going to die, including me. I mean, you know, I'm gone. My Marines are gone. But I just you know, look at these young people and these other people. Their lives are in your hands. Your decision here, you know, or lack of decision, whatever it is, that's what's going to be their history or the rest of their life. You know, I mean, that is an immense burden. And you know, so well, I told this guy, you know, and uh, the Frito Bandito is what I call him. I mean, it's you know, all my life, but uh, bringing the story back today, it's like looking. I can see him clear as day in my head. And he says, "Well, uh, uh, how do we work this?" And I said, "Look, I'm getting tired of holding a shotgun on you." I said, "You call your guys over." I said, "The back door over here goes out into into a little uh, area that is a service area, and it opens up the gate." that uh, is a service gate where they, I bring food and stuff into the, to the uh, restaurant. And I said, one of, our, one of my Marines will stand over top of the window. And I said, you guys can go out. You can search and check each one of them. But they walk out into this Coochie Bijan. If you look back into uh, uh, the history books, you'll see look, this Roosevelt Boulevard and, and Coochie Bijan gates. That's the names of the streets till today. You know, if you look back there. And I said, one by one by one, we agreed. One by one by one. We had uh, Stanley Lochek standing up top. And you know, and uh, looking over top of uh, of the Americans and the and the other uh, local service employees, and one by one they patted them down, let them go, pat them down, let them go. You know, one by one by one. When he got to the last one, 
And I told two Marines, I said, okay, that's it. I said, I'm going to pull my weapon in. And I said, give us three minutes. And I said, we'll unbolt the doors and you can come in. And that three minutes, uh, once those last Americans were out of there, I said, we busted up our shotguns, tore up our radios. We destroyed everything we possibly could. Banged them on the ground, got rid of the ammo. We screwed up everything we possibly could. And when they kicked in, I said, okay. And I, sh- I told the guy, I said, bring him in. And they kicked in the door and they walked in and he was, I can't tell you the rage this guy saw. Because when he came in and, you know, he, he found out, you know, oh, we got the Marines. Nobody else died. You know, the other people, you know, they didn't want to shoot anyway, but he got us. That's great. But when he realized that we had made a monkey's m- <laughs> a monkey out of him because he didn't get from us. They said all the equipment, everything he got was nothing, busted up. And they needed the weapons. They, they, they wanted them bad, and the radios were all busted up. And uh, so he just took the other two Marines outside. They, they cuffed them. They, they started slapping them around. But he kept me in there. And I just, they just started slapping, punching, beating. And it was just, you know, a whole guy dang, a free-for-all. Everybody just took their shots at you. Um, they stripped you down. For some reason, they, they kept my flak jacket. I mean, not a ballistic vest that you see in the last 15 years, maybe, um, on movies where uh, our soldiers and our Marines are using them nowadays. This is the old turtle shell ceramic plate. Flakjacks. I mean, that's what we were using back in the 70s. Remember, um, we were still in, uh, post-Vietnam. Vietnam didn't uh, fall till 75. This was like just barely three years after that. Right. So uh, he comes in, and he was just livid. And they're speaking Farsi back and forth to each other. There was a couple guys in there that uh, on his team that were in, uh, 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 they had white hoods on, almost like a KKK, and armbands. But the armbands were in Arabic. It wasn't, they weren't in Farsi. And they were speaking Arabic to each other, not Farsi. So uh, I, I didn't know what the difference was back then. But later on, when I, after I come home and Dan was debriefed out, that they were actually PLO. And Arafat was in there, and we got pictures of him in there with Khomeini at the time. So anyway, fast forward. At that point where they just made me out of a punching bag, you know. So they, they're blooding me up, busted up a couple teeth. You know? And I said, well, this, is, you know, this ain't going to go well. And... Uh, you know, he said, he says, this is how, this is why we hate you Americans. This is you, you lie, you steal, you cheat, you deceive everybody. You said you were going to do this. You said you're going to do that. And I said, hey, I told you I was going to surrender my Marines. No one else was going to die. I said, you're going to have all our equipment. <laughs> and I'm, I'm spitting out a tooth because it's broken and I got blood coming out. And I spit it out at him. I said, I, I told you you can have our stuff. I just tell you what condition it would be in. Well, that just set him off to no end. So he said something to this guy that had an AK-47. It, it, it was an AKM, actually, because it had a wooden, um, a wooden buttstock, solid wood. And he said something to him, and he caved in my ribs and busted my ribs, and down the floor I went. And this guy was so mad, and he was so embarrassed in front of his people that he had grabbed up, he had grabbed up one of our shotguns. Now, we had Remington 870P, which is a police version of right. 870, and you can fold it. It's got a folding stock. So when you fold it up with the pistol grip, it's a very ominous-looking weapon. People don't know weapon looking at it. They go, what the hell is that, you know? Anyway, so he had found a, uh, a shell and had put it in and uh, in, into the, uh, the, the chamber and racked it forward. And he's trying to figure out where the safety is, and he's, he's fumbling around with, you know, the whole thing. He's a complete idiot, but he's looking, you know, the way he's handling the weapon. But he ends up, you know, facing towards me and trying to figure out, you know, how to how to get the firing safety, you know, off. And uh, the, the end of the barrel is, is bent. We had banged it on the floor and, and bent it. So, but I see him looking at me, maybe twenty feet or, or eighteen to twenty feet, not lower, not less, not more. And uh, he just looks right at me, and he's looking down the barrel, trying to find the bead at the end of that gun. 
I'm just laying there on, on, and I can't get up. I've been beat and I see it coming. I, Jay, I'm telling you, I see it coming. I sense it coming. And I don't remember how afraid I was or if I was just numb. But when you know it's coming, you see it, you sense it, and there's nothing you can do about it. The freaky thing to this day that I tell people is that, oh, I know. Here's how insipid it was. I remember looking down that barrel of that shotgun and saying, okay, this is going to be like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I'm going to wait till the flash and I'm going to roll out of the way, you know? Uh-huh. You remember Bugs Bunny? Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's going down the shaft in the elevator at the last second he steps off and he's safe. Yeah, well, that, that's how, I guess, fear or, or terror, stark raving terror, you know, takes over your mind. And I never saw the blast. I, all, 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 I don't remember even hearing it tell you the God's honest truth. I just remember that there was a blast. It came forward. It hit me, hit my face. Um, hit, hit my arm and, you know, a lot, a lot of it hit my, uh, my flak jacket. Now my flak jacket was open. So there's about a two inch, three inch, uh, wide opening in my, in my chest and my stomach. And that's where it hits. It hits right in front of, uh, uh, maybe a couple inches right in front of where I'm laying on the floor there and it bounces into me and it opens my guts up. So I, I look down, I see my test is hanging out. I reach up, I got blood all over my face and I just roll over. I'm gone. And I said, F- that wasn't too bad. And I thought I, I thought I was dead. You know, I just boom, I'm gone. Um, and that's at 22. At uh, 22, yeah. That's uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Ken. I, I don't know the words to even begin to, to to put it into context from my point of view. And like I said, being a police, uh, we've all most of us have encountered extreme violence in some. Oh, yeah. But this <laughs> is like totally off the chart. And we got to take a, a, a short break. <laughs> We're talking with Ken Krause, uh, retired Roswell, Georgia police detective, also U.S. Marine. Uh, he was part of the first invasion of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, and uh, we're going to talk about what happened to him when we come right back. Don't go anywhere. This is Law Enforcement Today. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 3ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.the3ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 3ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. Do you owe back taxes to the IRS? Newsflash, the president has changed the tax laws. And now you may be able to pay the IRS less. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, the tax doctor can help you pay the IRS as little as possible allowed by law. There are new tax laws for business owners, the self-employed, even W-2 workers. If you have a back tax problem or a few years of unfilled returns, new help to save you money is now here. 
year. Call right now to see how the new tax laws can help you. Plus, right now, we'll waive the consultation fee and give you a free tax savings report. Attention business owners, the self-employed, and W-2 workers. Make this free call to the tax doctor now and learn how to take advantage of the new tax laws that may help you pay the IRS less. 800-663-5107-800-663-5107-800-663-5107. That's 800-663-5107. Welcome back to Law Enforcement Today. I'm John J. Wiley. Special guest, Ken Krause. Ken, first of all, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the story, I, I can't even say a word. I'm just glued to every word you have to say. I got to say a couple of things. Number one, thank you for your services as a, a police detective in Georgia. And man, thank you so much for your service, United States Marine Corps. And I, I am honored that I get to have this conversation with you. And the fact that you are alive and survived this horrific violence, which I'm sure there's a lot more on the way you're going to describe. Um, Absolutely, John. I'm telling you that, it, first of all, it's a privilege and a pleasure um, to have served and to talk to you about it, you know, to share the experience, uh, knowing that I happened to make the right decisions that day and got lucky that uh, 22, you know, non, 20, I call them 22 Americans. Well, they were not Americans. Uh, 22 other noncombatants lived and went on with their lives and had family and friends and, and grandchildren because I made the right decision. That was uh, that was something unique that came back to me. But at the time, I, I didn't think about you know their 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 lifestyle in the future to come. Just what was going to happen that day. But uh, to do what we did, you know, under the um, under the circumstances, was just what we're trained to do and what we signed up for. You know, USMC, you signed a mother contract, and that's you know that's what it was for. And that was the best way that I thought we were going to get out of that with the, the least amount of options we had and resources and manpower. A lack of command and control and authority, and you know, nobody knew what was going on. You guys you know, were pretty much like, on your own at that point. There was really no, there was no help. Nobody's coming. You had no no supplies on the way, and here you are, shot at close range with a shotgun. Thank goodness for that flak jacket. It, it caught a yep. lot of it, but you still. We're talking about double at buck. You still had significant abdominal injuries, uh, injuries throughout your face and upper body as well. Still got them today. Every time I go through the airport, you know, you'll see, you say, hey, what's that in your eye and what's that in your arm? You know, I say, ah, it's just a little shrapnel, you know. Or uh, when I take a, uh, a dental, whenever I go and get dental work done and they you know shoot the mouth or the jaw, you'll start to see, you know, above the eye and below the eye and stuff. It's still there. I mean, if they have to go in and dig it out, they're going to do more damage to your skin and, you know, more scars. I said, well, if it surfaces, we'll, okay, we'll come get it. If not, then you know, leave it alone. It's you know, no problem. I mean, there's a lot of Americans, you know, servicemen and women that have a lot worse, horrible, uh, you know, uh, uh, problems and, and injuries that I've ever, you know, uh, gone through. So spend your time and money on them. I'm still walking and talking. But to tell you the truth, you're right. It was a medical miracle. I mean, once uh, I woke up and uh, I don't know where I, I don't know how I got off the compound or anything else at that time. Later on, once I realized when I was debriefed and got back to uh, Washington D.C. and read uh, Mr. Doherty's book, uh, I learned so much more about it because he had done research for years afterward. I went, I didn't never knew that. I mean, it was like wow. And I, once the lights went out, boom, I woke up in supposedly a, a field hospital, but, I mean, it was not. And that's for pictures in uh, Time Magazine, UPI, API. I got, you know, I got tons of pictures. Of, you know, take a look at them, of me laying in bed there. And uh, they had stripped me down, took all my dog tags, took everything off, and all I had was in my skibby drawers and my T-shirt. So when I was in that, quote, hospital, 
Um, you're looking at people coming in and wanting to know who he was, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody knew who I was. There's no coordin- no, no coordination or anything. And uh, then one of the nurses, uh, her name was Suma. She had actually gone to the Bryn Mawr uh, School of Nursing in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, which is a couple miles down the road from Wayne, Pennsylvania, Valley Forge Military Academy, my high school alma mater. So we, we did a little bit of laughing and joking about that, you know, but she was still, you know, 100% Persian and, and uh, still on everybody's side. So but, but what a small world to find two people Truly. so close, you know, oh, my God. So anyway, um, I think I don't know his name and I've had different names um, tossed out at me. But he had come in and actually taken a picture of me that I got onto UPI and API uh, wire press. And it showed me in that hospital with Irene standing around me, uh, one with a gun, and you'll see blood going in, some other, I don't know where, saline solution, whatever. They had the IVs in me. And it showed, you know, Marine from the embassy, you know, assaulted. Now, this is in their, in their magazines, okay, and in their uh, newspaper articles. And I have copies, original copies of these from the Tehran Journal and the, uh, the Kayan, you know, I, the original. So they're like 1979 back then. They're 30, 38 years old, you know. Anyway, they're unique, and uh, if it wasn't for that picture, Jay, then when they did come out later on that night and snatched me out, um, just pull the pull the pull the uh, IV out, slap me in cuffs, and I, you know I'm sitting here, my butt hanging out, February freezing my butt off, and they drag me out, literally blindfold me because they don't know who I am. Now this is the Fed Ayin, supposedly, you know who knows what they are today, uh, back then, um, taking me out. And someone wanted to know who exactly who I was. Somebody said to somebody in the Farsi uh, program, hey, you know, one of those guys over the embassy there, he's all, he's all shot up. And uh, he said, we got him over here in this little hospital separated from everybody. Nobody knows he's there. Why don't we snatch him and see who he is? So off I went. And uh, I was catered, uh, caught her down to later I found out was Avin, E-V-I-N. Google that one. And that was the Shah's old uh, torture chamber police uh headquarters and prison they had they had me there and they had basically just turned the country upside down like they do in any revolution where you know, everybody that's in there that's either a crazy or criminal or a political prisoner when the new power comes in with Kamini, he just emptied out all the guy dang you know cells and they start putting all the sh- pro shah boys in there so you know it's just cleaning changes you know cleaning house change of uh you know programs i found myself in, the, in that prison there and, you know, basically, it's like, say, hey, look, guys, you know, I'm bleeding here. My guts are hanging out. I mean, you know, and nobody's, nobody's listening to you. This is a really nasty prison, buddy. I'm telling you, if you take a look at the, uh, the movie and the book I can reference, it's called On Wings of Eagles. And that's where Ross Perot, who was the uh, president and CEO of EDS, Electric Data Systems, uh-huh. has been uh, running all kinds of electronic um, software things over in Iran at the time. Well, his CEO and CFO, I think it was uh, uh, Bill, uh, is, is it Paul Chaprione and uh, Bill Gaylord, uh, Bill, yeah, Bill and Paul, they had, they had been taken and, uh, and, and imprisoned and also and were being held for ransom. They weren't going to beat them up or shoot them up. They said, hey, yeah, Ross Pro, he got money. So uh, they were holding him, and uh, basically the, the, the State Department now, they cut their pants down, cut with their pants down, the egg on their face, you know, kind of like almost like a, a recent Benghazi. It's almost like identical right, mirror right. image of it. Yeah. They said, oh, no, we're not going to let you go in there. We can't, you know, flame the situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's where Ross Perot hired uh, Bull Simons, okay, an old Army uh, guy from uh, a colonel from uh, Vietnam. And went in there and read that book, and he'll tell you that's how he went in there, took his own mercenary unit, he organized it, he financed it, he had it c- controlled, 
they went in there and they popped the prison and they got those two guys out, took them out through Turkey. Well, they, they were in there at Khwasar Prison and then they, at Avin, and then after they popped them out, they transported me over, you know, to a different prison. So they said, hey, we can't have people coming in here, you know, snatching these guys out back and forth. But when it came down to it. Did you feel it, like you were never going to get out of there at that point? Never. No, no, because you're down. You, this is a, this is a prison that's probably about three, four hundred years old, you know, and still being used. They had dungeons down there that left over from the Crusades. Okay, dungeons under the ground. If you read my story in Reader's Digest by Andrew Jones, uh, September of '79, it's a first-person account of the story of it says the American is cell number five. You know, Ponge. You know, it's in the, number five in, is Ponge in the, in, in the Farsi. And that's what it was, the first-person story that I gave to Reader's Digest when they came back. But it's very, very uh, editorialized, and for the most part, um, a lot of what you read in there is missing. You know, I mean, right. that, that sounds impossible. And you read it and read between the lines, there's a lot missing. But remember that after I came home, you know, this is still 79, and you just don't, you got a lot of Americans still at gunpoint and knife point all over the country. And you don't want to go on the news looking like, you know, some kind of hero or Davy Crockett on the wall, the Alamo, saying, yeah, we shot these guys. You know, because they might not get to me, but they can take it out, and they will take it out on the poor bastards that are left there. And again, it's 1970, it's 1979. We're barely four years after Saigon had fallen. So we haven't had the Mayaguez, the Kaltung. We hadn't had Panama. We haven't had Grenada. America really wasn't super proud of uh, their their servicemen and, and their veterans like they are today, thank God. Yeah. Okay? I mean, when we got off a of base at times, most of the time we had to wear, you know, civilian clothes. People weren't even, you know, still hating us and picking people off from, you know. I mean, I went in 74 after I got out of, you know, military academy after high school. So, boom, you know, we're talking four years later and still, we're, I'm a Vietnam-era veteran, but not a Vietnam service veteran. So, you, you play this in the mindset when you're looking 37 years ago. You know, and they're just now starting to figure out, oh, OK, the embassy has been, you know, given back to the to, to under control of Khamenei, et cetera, et cetera. And it's every kind of thing calmed down. Well, where the Marine, you know, right. this guy got shot up. He got beat up. Where's he at? Uh, and eventually we're getting short on time. So, first of all, I'm going to have to have you yeah. back to talk more about this and also how you advance into a career in law enforcement afterwards. But very quickly, because we got about two minutes Got it. Eventually, they released you. You got home. You got the Navy Cross, the Purple Heart, and you began a long process of physical and mental and emotional recovery. It was difficult because at the time, sir, uh, they didn't know what post-traumatic stress neurosis was. It wasn't even a syndrome. I mean, you had talked to look to people that had gone through battle after battle in the Marine Corps and in the Army, uh, fought their way all across Normandy, up and down Italy, island to island to island. And then when they came home after World War II in Korea, no one was even giving them the time of day. Right. Now we have one or two battles and people coming back from, you know, and it's no, it's no better. It's probably worse. Uh, you know, Fallujah or downtown Iraq, and they're coming back and they can see it. But back then, they just started to realize what it was like. And with my story, it's been taking years to get to the VA and explain to people that, you know, you don't want to continue to be a hostage and let their hate for people in general or what you went through control you. And, you know, long story short, that that was the hardest thing for me to do is to make sure that I did not put myself into mental, uh, spiritual, emotional relationships or events that would cause me to want to be a hostage. Because as soon as you, you know, want to try to make me a hostage in terms or in an argument or something else, you know, I revert back and I get fearful and I get defensive. And that's oh, not yeah. going to work for you and, and in a goes, first relationship. Goes quickly, or quickly, as quickly as too aggressive as well. So, man, exactly. Ken, 
my right. kudos off to you. Phenomenal interview. And uh, I'm definitely going to have you back because we're going to talk next time we get together. We'll talk more about the PTSD, the recovery, rebuilding your life, and then entering into career in law enforcement, uh, which I'm sure presented a, a unique set of challenges as well. Thank you so very much for joining us, man. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure, sir. Honor, privilege to serve, and proud to be uh, be able to come back on your show. You got my name and number, and God bless you, Semper Fi. One of the questions I get all the time, especially when we're talking to other radio stations about adding a law enforcement today radio show to their lineup, what is your show all about? And it's not what most people would think. It's not confrontational. You know how Investigation Discovery Channel has all these shows about investigations and people have a curiosity about police? Well, we feature police officers, law enforcement officers, active, retired, spouses, family members, and supporters talking about their experiences from their point of view. If you want to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a great guest but you know doesn't want to say, uh, I don't want to seek attention myself, we'd love to hear from them. And we'd accommodate them from anywhere. It doesn't matter where they are. We're in Florida. They, don't, they could be anywhere. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Oregon, doesn't matter. We can uh, record them here at our studios in South Florida. So just contact us. The easiest way is go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, the Contact Us tab. Send an email to me, jay at lawenforcementtoday.com, or robert at lawenforcementtoday.com. You can also send a message via Facebook. We're all over this thing called the World Wide Web, Instagram, and all that stuff, too. On behalf of everyone associated from Law Enforcement Today, I'm John J. Wiley. Till next time, see ya. Ooh.